Well, today we continue on in our series in Deuteronomy as uh, we have been walking through uh, this uh, great book of a sermons, a series of sermons that Moses is preaching as he's preparing the people of Israel for this life that they are about to enter into as they enter into the promised land and all that that entails. And we've been uh, trying to draw out a number of the principles or the aspects of this text that we have been called and it's been known and referred to as the Gospel of Moses. Uh, and we've been drawing out those things that are foundational and that really point ahead uh, to what we see in the New Testament as the Gospel of Jesus and things that, that translate and, and carry forward and in many ways are expanded in a, in a variety of ways. Uh, things like the fact that our hearts uh, have a tendency to be idle factories. And we talked about that a number of weeks ago. And looking specifically at that story of the golden calf that Moses reminded the people of, and it, it also carries forward uh, into our lives today, into the New Testament, this whole idea that we so easily make idols out of many good things, and the need for confession and repentance and so on. Uh, a couple of weeks ago also we talked about the idea of the tithe and of living a generous life. And that theme that comes through here in the Gospel of Moses that is expanded and extended in the New Testament at what it means to live a generous life today. Um, two weeks ago, I think it was, then Willie Reimer was here and he, he shared, he jumped ahead to the end a little bit of Deuteronomy 30, but he talked about this idea of needing to choose, even that song that we just sang just now, this idea that we need to choose today who we will serve. And Moses declares that in that text that we look at, and how also as we go into the New Testament, we see again how Jesus calls us to choose. Who will you serve? How will you walk? How will you live? And then last week, we had a, a great celebration and a time of thanksgiving, and this theme that, again, Moses draws out and calls his people to these festivals, these celebrations that are there for the people of God to acknowledge God's faithfulness and to point ahead to the celebration also that is to come. And so we have all of these, uh, these themes and these foundational pieces that are then carried forward uh, as we look at the New Testament. We'll, we'll look at some more today. So today we want to look at Deuteronomy 19, and I'd encourage you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 19 as we look at maybe what you would think of as a bit of an obscure uh, text but it's uh, actually, when you think of this idea of the cities of refuge, which is what we're going to focus on here today, but yet it, it points to the very heart and the very character of God. And it carries forward into the, the New Testament in, in so many ways, and we will see these two themes of grace and justice that we'll draw out of this text today, and again, how that, that carries through uh, throughout the New Testament. I want to ha just read through all of chapter 19, and I, I don't have the, the verses for you today. I want, again, for you to listen. And, and so often we can get caught up in even just reading the Word of God, and sometimes it's good to just sit and listen to the Word of God, as the people would have been listening to Moses as he spoke uh, to them in the series of sermons. And so even this morning as I read chapter 19, I, I'd encourage you just, just to listen, and we'll look at some of the specific texts uh, a little bit later. So here's what Moses says to the people. When the Lord your God destroys the nations whose land he is giving you, you will take over their land and settle in their towns and homes. Then you must set apart three cities of refuge in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Survey the territory and divide the land the Lord your God is giving you into three districts, with one of these cities in each district. 
Then anyone who has killed someone can flee to one of the cities of refuge for safety. If someone kills another person unintentionally, without previous hostility, the slayer may flee to any of these cities to live in safety. For example, suppose someone goes into a forest with a neighbor to cut wood. And suppose one of them swings an axe to chop down a tree. And the axe head flies off the handle, killing the other person. In such cases, the slayer may flee to one of the cities of refuge to live in safety. If the distance to the nearest city of refuge is too far, an enraged avenger might be able to chase down and kill the person who caused the death. Then the slayer would die unfairly, since he had never shown hostility toward the person who died. That is why I'm commanding you to set aside three cities of refuge. And if the Lord your God enlarges your territory, as he swore to your ancestors, and gives you all the land that he promised them, you must designate three additional cities of refuge. He will give you this land if you are careful to obey all the commands I have given you, if you always love the Lord your God and walk in his ways. That's in brackets. I love how Moses throws that in again. He'll give you this land if you obey, because that's been one of the themes that he said. Continuing in verse 10. That way you will prevent the death of innocent people in the land your Lord, the Lord your God is giving you as your special possession. You will not be held responsible for the death of innocent people. But suppose someone is hostile toward a neighbor and deliberately ambushes and murders him and then flees to one of the cities of refuge. In that case, the elders of the murderer's hometown must send agents to the city of refuge to bring him back and hand him over to the dead person's avenger to be put to death. Do not feel sorry for that murderer. Purge from Israel the guilt of murdering innocent people. Then all will go well with you. When you arrive in the land your Lord, the Lord your God is giving you as your special possession, you must never steal anyone's land by moving the boundary markers your ancestors set up to mark their property. You must not convict anyone of a crime on the testimony of only one witness. The facts of the case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness comes forward and accuser, accuses someone of a crime, then both the accuser and the accused must appear before the Lord by coming to the priests and judges in office at that time. The judges must investigate the case thoroughly. If the accuser has brought false charges against his fellow Israelite, you must impose on the accuser the sentence he intended for the other person. In this way, you will purge such evil from among you. Then the rest of the people will hear about it and be afraid to do such an evil thing. You must show no pity for the guilty, for your, your rule should be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. So this text points us to two seemingly incompatible things. Grace and justice. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, at first glance, no two things can seem more opposed than grace and justice. Grace is giving benefits that are not deserved, while justice is giving people exactly what they do deserve. In Christ, we receive grace, unmerited favor. Nevertheless, in the mind of the Old Testament prophets, as well as the teachings of Jesus, an encounter with grace inevitably leads to a life of justice. So the two go hand in hand, grace and justice, and yet they seem to be on many levels so opposed, and yet they're not. And we'll see that today. When I was thinking of this text and I was thinking of grace and justice, I was thinking a little bit of Father's Day, and I wanted to give a tribute to dads. And uh, fathers, I think, as they are called to raise their children, need to walk with grace and justice. And healthy households have that balance there within them as well. And 
and I had a picture of my father, but it doesn't look like that's working really well. So imagine a picture of two men, one that looks kind of like me and one that looks like an older version of me, both of us wearing plaid. Because my dad was a farmer, he loved plaid. I have inherited that, and that's why I took out one of my most comfortable shirts today and wore plaid for dad, okay? You know, not the you know, fundraising thing, not that there's anything wrong with raising funds for prostate cancer, that's good, but we wore plaid way before that, and I have many choices to choose from in my closet when it comes to plaid. But dads, fathers, need to walk in grace and justice, And I am so thankful that I had a father who also did that. And now he's 88 years old and still doing relatively well health-wise, and I'm just really thankful for my dad. And so a tribute to each of you fathers. But I think that this truth and even this tension of the grace and justice is is found there in fathers and in the role that we are called to as fathers to raise our children. Let's go back to our cities of refuge conversation. Imagine a group of men, these Israelites, who were so accustomed to killing as they were called to do entering into the promised land, that part that we've been talking about throughout this series that is sometimes difficult to get our heads around, difficult to understand, but a reality of how God has called them to enter into this land. And so all the same, we have all of these men, these men of Israel, who are now accustomed to killing in that way, and now they are to make a society for themselves. And Moses is encouraging them, preparing them, and saying, okay, once you enter the land, once you take the land and the homes and the places that you are called to take, the special possession given to you by God, now you need to establish for yourself a bit of a just society. You need to live in a certain way, is what he's saying. Because if you had a group of men who were just so accustomed to killing, I mean, can you imagine how hard that would be to establish that? Evil is there within their midst. Evil is in the hearts of men and women. It's part of our fallenness. And so for these men, especially as they establish these towns and these places that they were to take over, how hard would it be to have justice? I think vengeance would probably take over. That would probably be the rule of the land. That would be more of how people responded things to things. And so here within this text, in Deuteronomy 19, we see the collision of these three things, of man's sinful nature, of God's justice, but also of God's grace, all combined together. Chris Appleby is a pastor, and and he writes a great sermon on this text, and he asks this question that I really like. He says, how do you deal with murder, even accidental murder, in a world with no police force, no justice system, no penal code? How does that work? Probably what would happen, it would be more the era of the vendetta, a blood feud between families, escalating retaliation. Maybe some of you have experienced that in your family. I'm the youngest of five boys. There was a fair bit of that at times, of just the revenge, the retaliation, the escalation, and it looks a whole variety of different ways. You knock out my tooth, I come back with my brother and knock out two of your teeth. You kill my sheep, I kill your cow. That's probably some of what was happening in this area. Then it even got nastier and it got more painful. You kill my brother, I kill your children. Probably some of what was going on, probably what would be the natural response of these people to bring justice in their own way when things of injustice seem to come upon them. 
And so these cities of refuge were given to them by God as part of creating this order and creating grace and creating a system of justice. It was a safe place to go to avoid the vengeance that might be there, the retaliation of somebody who's looking to get revenge, especially if it was an accidental thing that happened, as it says here in this text. And so these cities of refuge were a place that were there to allow justice to take its course. And really, they were the beginnings of the modern-day justice system. So much of our justice system today is actually built on the foundation of what we see here in Deuteronomy, of what Moses established for the people of Israel. If you go back to uh, the book of Exodus, uh, you see the people of Israel as Moses is leading the people of Israel. If you go look at, we won't take time today, but if you look at chapters 21, 22, 23, those chapters start to establish these civil laws that God has imparted upon his people. Not only were they given the moral law of the Ten Commandments of here's how you're to live amongst each other, but here's the civil laws of how you make a, a, a society that actually works together. And so if you go back to Exodus, you see that being instituted and starting to be fleshed out. Now in Deuteronomy, you see Moses reminding the people of that, of what they experienced back there in the Exodus time, and now he's preparing them for what's coming ahead in the promised land. And he's saying, this is what you now need to do in order to live as a civil society and, and how you need to set aside these, these cities of refuge. If you step ahead and you look into the book of Joshua, which comes next, and you look in Joshua 20, you see this actually being lived out as the people have settled into the promised land. And you see it playing out more in real time. And if you turn to uh, Joshua chapter 20, I want to just read this one text where you see it playing out, where... Um, it records these cities of refuge and it records the six. Because remember in Deuteronomy it says, establish these three and if God gives you and follows through on his promise and gives you more land, add three more. So there's three on one side of the Jordan River, three on the other side of the Jordan River. And it says it this way. The following cities were designated as cities of refuge. Joshua 20, verse 7. Kadesh of Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali. Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim. And Kiriath Arba, which is Hebron in the hill country of Judah. On the east side of the Jordan River, across from Jericho, the following cities were designated. Bezer in the wilderness plain of the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth and Gilead in the territory of the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan, in the land of the tribe of Manasseh. These cities were set apart for all the Israelites as well as the foreigners living among them. Anyone who accidentally killed another person could take refuge in one of these cities. In this way, they could escape being killed in revenge prior to standing trial before the local assembly. I think we have a slide that shows the map of these cities. And so you see on there, you see these towns that are there before the people that are written about here in Joshua chapter 20. And so there's three cities that are on the one side of the Jordan River as the Sea of Galilee flows down into the Dead Sea. And on the other side, there are three other cities. And they are strategically located geographically so that every person can access a city of refuge quite quickly. And so Moses is saying to the people, you need to establish these cities of refuge, set them up so that if somebody accidentally kills someone, which would be known today as involuntary manslaughter, you have a place to go for refuge. You have a place to go where justice can prevail and where the justice system, as archaic as it was back then, can actually do its work and people can uh, come to justice in an, uh, in an appropriate way. And then it also says in verse, uh, or at the end of that verse, it, 
in uh, chapter 9 of Joshua 20. These cities were set apart for all the Israelites as well as the foreigners living among them. And we see again how this grace of God is expanded beyond the people of Israel again, expanded to even those who are foreigners now living in their midst. And he says it's for them too. And so again, we see more and more of the character of God and this expanding grace of God that is given here to these people. So similar to today in our justice system of today, as people went to these cities of refuge, the judges at that time would investigate motive, intent, method, all the things that are a precursor to our modern-day court system and justice system today. It served to modify the harshness of personal retribution, to give a fair trial, to have legal procedures that would guide the people in this. Can you imagine the relief of somebody who finally made it to a city of refuge, being chased by these avengers, these people who wanted revenge upon them because of something that happened, maybe an accidental death that was caused. And now they, they flee to this place, and it's this safe haven. It's like once they are entered into these gates, there is safety, and there is shelter, and there is protection, and there is justice. They can count on it. It would be a profound thing for somebody who was experiencing that. It wasn't meant to protect the murderer because it says that in our text in Deuteronomy. No, no, no. If somebody intentionally kills another person with motive, they are not safe in a city of refuge. In fact, the murdered people's family can go and retrieve them from there and bring their justice. But it is a safe haven for the innocent. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 19 and look at verse 14, It talks about thieves and liars. And again, this need for justice in this way as well. In verse 14, when you arrive in the land the Lord your God is giving you as your special possession, you must never steal anyone's land by moving the boundary markers your ancestors set up to mark their property. And oftentimes in these kind of cultures, people would steal land by just simply moving whatever boundary markers were there and then just sort of claiming, no, 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 this is my land. And some of you have heard the story, and some of you were part of this story with our team that went down to Panama in 2009. And out of that team, and some of you were part of that, were building the fence around the camp that Aner and Herlesa have in Yaviza, in this very remote region of Panama. And there are lots of people in that area who are not nice people. And when you go into Yaviza, you get a sense of that. And A couple of years later, they had a neighbor who actually tried and went to court with papers and said, no, 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 this land is my land. It doesn't belong to the MB Church of Panama. It belongs to me. And it actually never went to court because they threw it out because when they went there, they saw this fence that was built and this fence that the team that was from here was building of this fence. I wasn't part of that. I was actually up on the roof on that project. But some of you were part of building this fence that was there and it actually established the boundaries of that land and justice prevailed. And it was a great story. It was a celebration. And so here, too, Moses is saying that you, you don't steal somebody else's land in this way, that justice needs to prevail. In verse 15 and following, it says, you must not convict anyone of a crime on the testimony of only one witness. The facts of the case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so again, part of this judicial system here of the fact that, that justice can only prevail It depends so much on people knowing and speaking the truth. Which is why you see people, 
acknowledge that and declare that they will speak the truth, however they do that in our court system today. But that truth needs to prevail in order for justice to be served. So here in this setting, it's like there has to be two or three witnesses in order for somebody to be accused of something. Bearing false witness breaks God's commandment, and it undermines the foundation of the legal system and the very foundation of justice of any kind. We see that in all of the Jewish law. We see that as we go into the New Testament, how Jesus and Paul in their writings, as they talked about church discipline, they talked about this whole idea of having two or three witnesses. And so they carry this forward into the New Testament. They carry this forward and say, no, 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 there needs to be truth that is spoken if there is an accusation, and two and three witnesses will help with that. You see, laws are necessary to bring order to any society to restrain evil, and to help control behavior. And yet the truth is, is that laws can never change the human heart, as only the grace of God can do that. And if this section of Scripture in Deuteronomy 19 emphasizes anything, it's that God holds human life precious and wants us to treat people fairly and justly and with dignity as they are created in the image of God. And this chapter, again, is setting the foundation of so much that comes after it. Even if you read the very last verse, verse 21 of Deuteronomy 19, which we might think is kind of this harsh treatment where it says this, you must show no pity for the guilty. Your rule should be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. It's actually an expression of moderation. I mean, it sounds so barbaric. It doesn't seem moderation, But it actually, in that context, it is. Because again, people followed through on the retribution, the escalation, this vendetta, this this vengeance kind of thing. And so if somebody knocks out my tooth, I knock out two of yours. If somebody kills my sheep, I kill your cow. It all escalates. And that's how things sort of... And so here Moses is saying, no, no, no. There needs to be fair justice. It's just an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So it's actually an expression in that context of modifying harshness of personal retribution. These people would not be able to have been told by Moses, well, you know, you just need to forgive 70 times 7, like Jesus said. The reason is, is because they didn't have that story of Jesus at this point. They didn't have that expression of God's grace and God's justice at that time. They couldn't point to the cross of Jesus Christ and the grace of God that overwhelmed the justice that was required of them at that time. Nor did they have the Holy Spirit within them that was given to them when Jesus returned to the Father, the Holy Spirit within them that would allow them and give them power and the ability to live in this way. And so they were given laws that limited the natural desires and reactions and brought grace and justice into that context. As you look at the character of God and some of the character of God that is revealed here in this text, You see it also revealed in so many other places, even in the Old Testament. In Psalm 68, it talks about this idea that God is the father to the fatherless and the defender of widows. In Isaiah uh, Isaiah 58, it says this text in verse 6 and 7 that we have referred to in our context here in our church numerous times. Where the prophet is saying, what is true fasting? Here's what true fasting looks like. 
He says, no, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. Over and over again, this theme that reveals the heart of God, of a God of grace and justice, these two things that go so closely together comes through again and again in Scripture. Even in Psalm verse 91, verse 1 and 2, it speaks of God as a refuge. It says, Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust Him. God is a God of grace and justice. As we approach the New Testament and as we move from the Gospel of Moses to the Gospel of Jesus, think of the attributes of these cities of refuge as you think about the salvation in Jesus Christ. These cities of refuge were divinely appointed. They were easily accessible. They were open to all. They were clearly marked and signed. And they were always open. See how it points ahead to Jesus Christ and the salvation of God that is found in Him. It illustrates this salvation that is found in Jesus where we flee to for grace and refuge. But it also is an illustration in contrast because the cities of refuge were there for the innocent. The cities of refuge were there to shelter those who had done actually no wrong. And the difference here as we come to the message of salvation of Jesus Christ is that we are not the innocent. We are guilty. Nobody has to investigate our case. We know that we have sinned. We know that we deserve God's punishment. And yet the central way to understand the work of Christ on the cross is reflected in these cities, this dual work of grace and justice, that a penalty for wrong, sin, is due. Due to a just God, a God who is judge, a God who is holy, a God of justice but then paid for by God himself in Jesus Christ. Paid in full. The need for justice overwhelmed by the grace of Jesus, the grace of God. This is the good news of the gospel of Moses. And this is the incredible good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of grace and justice together. Scripture is filled with all kinds of stories of this character of God, of grace, and of justice. We see that in the story of the Good Samaritan, the parable that Jesus told of what it means to be a good neighbor and how anyone who is in need is your neighbor and how we are called to help and to provide care and mercy and grace. It's told in the story of the prodigal son and the extravagant love of a father who overwhelms the injustice with his grace and with love and forgiveness. Again, pictures of who God is. So the people of Israel are a community that is being formed and shaped into a community of justice. And Moses is preparing them for that and, and shaping them into that and speaking these sermons on this of what it means to be these kind of people in that context that they were facing. And the church today is also called to be a community of justice. We have a similar calling. What will that look like for us? What does that look like for us? 
What will it look like for you? Because you see, when we are touched by the grace of God, when we truly are captivated by the overwhelming love of our Heavenly Father, when we actually have an idea of our sin and the rebellion that is there within our heart and how that is overwhelmed by the mercy and the grace of God, it changes us. It makes us people who are attentive to the needs of others. It makes us people who are attentive to the injustice that is around us. It makes us people who need to live responsively to where justice needs to be served and brought and overwhelmed with grace in one way or another. And this is a responsive church, and I praise God for that. $10,000 raised for the bridge and the ministry that happens in that setting. But again, God continually calls us forward. How will we be those kind of responsive people? What will that look like for us in the year ahead and the years ahead? We're called to respond, not, not as a way to earn our salvation, but a sign of the fact that we have already been saved. It's an expression of our righteousness, our right standing with God. I want to invite the, the worship team up at this time. And as they come up, I want to leave you with three opportunities or three challenges for you to consider. And if you're one who uh, regularly picks up the sermon study guide that's at the back there, I'd encourage you to do that this week. It's also found online where the sermons are on our website. And you can go there and, and get it electronically as well. But even in that sermon guide, it outlines in more detail these three opportunities. But I would encourage you to consider these, to reflect on these, to, to pray about it maybe as a family or as an individual or maybe in your small group. I know our small group has been talking about this for next year and asking the question, how will God have us respond in this way to serve the marginalized the poor, where there's injustice? How will God have us respond in one way or another? And there's three opportunities that I put in front of you here today. One of those that you'll find it on our website, and it's a small group package for reducing poverty here in the city of Saskatoon. If you just go under our main resource page, you'll see a tab there that just says reducing poverty in Saskatoon. And click on that, you'll see all kinds of information there, and you'll see a download of a small group package that you can walk through with your small group. And all kinds of research and, and information and uh, just paints the picture of our city. Partly through the work of the Saskatoon Poverty Reduction Partnership. And how they are inviting churches to be more involved and thankful for all the involvement that is there. But to be more involved in some of these issues of poverty. How might your small group be involved in some of those opportunities that you see there? Also in that study guide that you'll see. There's a website there just taking you to the MB Missions website and the various countries that MB Missions serves around the world. And one that I would highlight for you right now is the country of Ukraine. There's so much uh, devastation that is happening there in that setting right now. And there are many brethren churches that are very close to the front lines in that southern region of the Ukraine that are serving continuously. In fact, there are many groups that are actually taking van loads of supplies in uh, about a dozen times a month into the war zone, um, taking food, supplies, Bibles, and all kinds of things to the people who are trapped there and to some of the other churches that are there in that region and just caring for the needs of the people in whatever way they can. One, one MB pastor actually made the comment. He says, I have to drive really fast because it's harder to hit a moving target. So he drives at least 100 kilometers an hour into the zone and out of the zone every time. Van loads full of stuff. And they're inviting uh, would other churches be involved in raising support, about $7,000 a month needed to continue to bring these supplies into that region? Just yesterday, I got communication um, of a new opportunity, a new challenge, and, and we know there's opportunities 
and needs all around us. But our MB Church family has been asked to enter in with about 13 other denominations here in Canada to be involved with the Syrian refugee need that is there in Syria and the surrounding country of Iraq. There are over 3 million registered refugees with the UN. Over 6 million displaced Syrians with five years of war that has been happening in that country. And they're asking churches in Canada to rise up and to bring in some of these refugees because of what's happening there with ISIS and the Christian community. And many of these are are Syrian Christians. They just have no place to go because of all the things that are happening around them. Their country is so unsafe, they go to Iraq for safety. And so Canada has agreed to take 10,000 of these Syrian refugees by the year 2016, most by private sponsorship through the churches. And again, there's a link on that study guide that I would encourage you to go and to look. It's a video to watch. There's all kinds of information. I just lay a few of these in front of you, in front of us, to say, God, how would you have us respond? This is part of, of the very heart of God, of being people of grace and justice. And we have this incredible picture, this kind of peculiar picture of these cities of refuge that were there for the people of Israel to be this safe haven, to be this safe place. And in a sense, it's a picture of the church, of what we're called to be and how we're called to live as part of the expression of the character of God and his desire for grace and justice. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths that we see in Scripture. We thank you for these words of Moses that you have spoken through him that prepared and challenged the people of Israel. And Lord, as we look uh, throughout the Old Testament and into the New, that we see this this challenge reverberating throughout the generations, this call to the church that is continually there to be a place of safety, a place of grace and justice, of holding these two things together. And Father, would you help us to be a people who respond, who don't just read these things, see these things, and go, okay, that's good, or maybe send some money, and that's a good thing, and we are thankful for that. But how else might we be involved? How else might you call us to sacrifice, to be inconvenienced, to go, to serve? What might that look like? God, would you lead us, and would you guide us? So, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love that you have overwhelmed the justice that was required at the cross. And we praise your name. Amen.